Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Feature Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the National Council for Voluntary Organisations Road Ahead 2022 report. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we'll be joined once again by Third Sector's editorial assistant, Alina Martin. But first, what's the weirdest thing you've ever been given, Emily? So um, when I was about 15, the boy I had a crush on gave me a butternut squash for Christmas. So uh, it's a bit, a bit of a spoiler for listeners. Like we we do have a chat about like what we're going to bring up. And I said, have you ever been given anything weird? And, and Emily said this. And I, I've spent like the last 24 hours like giggling and and mystified by this. Um I mean, imagine how you must have felt if you'd literally been given the butternut squash. Absolutely. What? What? Take, take us, take us through. And was it cooked or uncooked? It was uncooked. It was a raw <laughs> butternut squash, um, and uh, mystifyingly, it had a, a friendship bracelet. Okay, it was wrapped around the narrow uh, part of the butternut squash. I don't know what bit you would call it. You have like the bulbous kind of bottom of it, and then you've got like the the narrow bit. And there was like a homemade friendship bracelet. Uh, I want to say the... shaft. I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah, no. <laughs> Just like that bit of it had a friendship bracelet on. Um, uh, and I mean, yeah, mystified, giggling. I went through the whole uh, gamut of emotion. You have never seen a root vegetable be so closely analysed. That is, that is quite something. Um, I, yeah. So, do we do we know what the thought process was uh, at all? Um, not really. All I can tell you is that all of our friends got a root vegetable of some sort from this guy over Christmas. So maybe he just went to Sainsbury's and he bought one of those like winter packs of mixed root vegetables and as a joke, maybe wrapped them all and gave them out to everybody because I definitely had a friend who got a parsnip off this guy. Um, And I I got the squash um, in this, uh, uh, yeah, this little uh, winter gift collection. I, I can't decide if that makes it weirder or less weird, but it is that is quite incredible. Um I yeah, I really I, I did actually that. end up going out with this guy. I was we, gonna we say that was gonna be my next question. So it did it did it worked out well. Oh, it was highly effective. Yeah. I mean I can't remember actually what happened to the butternut squash itself. I'm pretty sure my mum chopped it up and roasted it um for dinner one evening. But feels appropriate. We did then, as indeed we are now dissecting and roasting it all these years later. Absolutely. Well, maybe I'll send him a message after this episode and just say, "Hey, um, <laughs> we haven't spoken in you know twenty years, but uh, not twenty years. I'm not 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 quite there. Fifteen years, we'll say. Haven't spoken in fifteen years. Uh, can we just do like a a circle back on the butternut squash?" And what was going on there? I still have questions. I it's still been have 15 questions. years and I still have questions. <laughs> yeah. like, what about you anyway? Um, I was trying to think. So I think the the weirdest gift probably, I've definitely already talked on the podcast. I was thinking about this. I've definitely already talked on the podcast about the time my uh, my cousin got given some toenail clippings by a patient of, no, toenail clippers by a patient oh, of hers. No. They were like really old and rusty. I've definitely already mentioned that one. But the other one that, that leapt to mind was my aunt, um, 
she I, I feel bad she I, she's never going to listen to this podcast so it's fine um but she I think she panicked and the first time I bought my then boyfriend home for Christmas or like to to a family Christmas I think she had met him previously but yeah when it came to giving out Christmas gifts she just panicked and gave him a hardback book that was a very lovely looking book that was the history of herring well that's niche I mean yeah it's it's niche. I think she just freaked out and just walked into Waterstones and went, that'll do. Um, Rebecca's got a boyfriend coming home. That'll do. Um, and I mean, it, the, the boyfriend was, 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 was Abby. Like, and she had met him previously. Does Abby strike you as a man that is particularly interested in the history of herring? I've never, I can't say um, I've ever looked at him and gone, there's a man who loves an oily fish. Um, <laughs> but I mean, also, here is my question. How much is there really to say about the history of herring? Like, is this like a little slim volume or are we talking like a no, massive no, no, coffee no. table it was, book? It was like a, you know, we're talking like probably a couple of centimetre and a half thickness, hardback, lovely presented book. And I'm sure the history of herring is fascinating. I just, I don't know why. I think, I think, you know, it was genuinely like, I want to give this man a gift. I don't know what to do. History of herring. Boom. Here is here is the history of herring, um, and I did I did resolve to read it, but then I think I think Abby gave it to the charity shop. Um, oh, and, uh, yes, he gave it to a charity shop. That's well, that's he very did. Timely, isn't it? That's a very that appropriate is. thing. Because why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because this is one of my favourite times of the charity press cycle. Because every year or so, charities send us the list of the weirdest charity shop donations they've had. And we've just had one from Bernardo's and there are some really good things on here. Just the weird and wonderful. So yeah, Emily, what were your favourites? Um, there are so many. I'm just going to have to force myself to choose two. Um, probably the first one is that in a charity shop in Catterick, uh, Bernardo's received a quality luxury man's coat um, as a donation, nice. which is very nice. However, uh, there was also a slice of pizza in the bag with the coat. Um <laughs> I don't know if they were coming as like a single um, ticket item or if the pizza was going to be like a separate donation. I don't know. I also wish I knew, I wish they'd specified kind of what kind of pizza it was as well. That is true. I mean, was it somebody was eating pizza and shouldn't have been and panicked? Like, is that... Is, 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 Maybe um, they had the slice of pizza and they were eating it as they were going into the charity shop and then they had a sign up which said no food in this shop and they panicked and shoved the slice of pizza into the bag thinking I will take it out and continue my snack later and then they just forgot uh, yeah that is entirely possible um on on this on the um topic of uh, food related uh, items we've had um a tin of crab meat labeled best before 2015 was donated in 2021 um, in Perthshire, which like I like, are you confusing the charity shop with like the the church or the school harvest festival stuff? Like, is that oh, maybe it's like a vintage thing? <laughs> vintage crab meat? That's not no, but nobody's interested in in, in retro crab meat. Um, that's quite something. Oh, a tin of crab meat. In fact, like the foodstuffs that we're seeing in this donations list are not even the strangest things. I mean, shop workers in Rotherham were given a pot containing nine human molars. Ooh, I know. I can see, see, you can't see Rebecca's face, but um, just imagine, imagine your face hearing this and that's what her face is doing. Yeah, not great for radio. I mean, the the thing that that leaps to mind is, is it weird that it's only molars? Do you know what I mean? I know I know people sometimes keep their kids' baby teeth and I kind of 
I, I, I can kind of get on board with that. I mean, I wouldn't donate it, but, but the fact that it's only molars, it feels a bit more clinical. Um, I'm not even sure how many molars you get in your mouth. I'm just trying to count them now with my tongue and I'm not sure. I think you probably do get about nine. But this is something that's really weird if you want to feel very spooked. Somewhere, Rebecca, somewhere in the world, all your baby teeth are out there. Just somewhere. Maybe your mum kept them. Maybe she didn't. But like, they're going to be somewhere in a tip or something. There's something about that that really wigs me out. The idea that somewhere in the world, I've got like a full set of bones just rolling around. Okay, well, that is going to haunt me forever. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Forever and ever. Um, and in terms of donations, there was a lot of death actually in the donations, I would say. You know, there's this kind of um, somebody donated a hamster cage with uh, a, 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 the hamster still in it. Uh, the hamster was, was dead under a pile of sawdust. Um, oh, yeah, someone else donated um, a handbag with a, a dead bird inside it. Oh, no. Yeah. Just a, a dead bird. It doesn't say oh. what sort of bird. I don't know if we're talking pigeon or parrot or like how this has come about. I, oh. Or if it was like taxidermied. They, it just said dead bird on the press release. So I, I'm not clear. Um, which, yeah, is grim. Um, and another one, um, another favourite one of mine was in rural Kendall. Staff were bemused to receive a farmer's lambs castrating tool. Oh, I mean, I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about how that ended up in a charity shop. That's yeah, I mean, profoundly disturbing. Maybe they're expensive. Maybe they they are expensive and in common use in rural Kendall. I guess, um, but I just my honestly, I, I've kind of decided that that the rule should be: if you're weighing up whether or not to donate an item to a charity shop, you should stop and ask yourself: if I were to receive this in the post. Is there a possibility I would think I was being targeted by a serial killer? And if the answer is yes, put it in the bin. Don't give it to a trash shop or give it a decent burial. Maybe, you know, whichever is appropriate, depending on <laughs> whether this thing was formerly alive, formerly a part of your body. Um, yeah. Lay it gently to rest. But even though this uh, list is uh, pretty alarming in parts, I have to say it's not all bad news. Um one of the most heartwarming donations mentioned in this press release from Bernardo's uh, was given to a charity shop in Worsley, Manchester. Um, and it was a child's drawing whiteboard with a message written on it that read, Thank you, Bernardo's. You helped me find my forever home. The Road Ahead 2022, published on the 18th of January is the latest edition of the NCBO's annual analysis of the changing operating environment for the voluntary sector. It identifies key political, economic, social, technological, environmental and legal issues which are likely to affect charities in the next year. During the pandemic, the sector rose to the many challenges it faced, the report says, and it seized opportunities to renew communities, focus on the relationships that matter, and change individual and collective trajectories. But the research warns that as we approach the second anniversary of the pandemic, a deep exhaustion is tempering enthusiasm for yet more change. The report highlights that as a society, we are better equipped to deal with new variants and waves of infection than at any previous point during the pandemic. The report says somewhere between the breaking points of the pandemic and our desperation for normality, a new practicality is emerging. 
And the NCVO hopes this report will help those working and volunteering in the voluntary sector to make the best possible informed decisions about their future. To find out more about the report and its conclusions, I spoke to Alex Farrow, Head of Networks and Influencing at NCVO, who compiled the report. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Um, brilliant. So this this report it's quite wide ranging um, in a lot of ways. It covers it covers kind of quite a vast swathe of the kind of cultural and political landscape in the UK at the moment, and quite a wide range of the issues that charities are facing. What strikes you as the most kind of interesting or kind of standout point from the report? So I think the most interesting point for us isn't so much about the specific things that we say in the report, but more about the kind of general context in which we think we are publishing this report. So we're now looking ahead at the third year of living under a global pandemic. Um, and this is our second report, uh, the second version of the road ahead that we've published since the pandemic. And we know that the toll of this last two years has been heavy and it's been disproportionate. Um, and we know that so many people have experienced so much loss during that time. Um, through, through the time, I think there have been w- different waves of, of kind of hope and there have been moments where we've kind of, there have been big calls for us to renew our communities, to focus on those meaningful relationships that we have and to kind of reimagine, uh, the world and like what are the big changes that we want to see in our society and in, in how the world runs. But it feels to us now that there's more of a deep exhaustion. Um, and kind of lower enthusiasm for change as we're just kind of worn down by two years of living uh, under a global pandemic. So within that context, um, I think that's, that's what we're focusing on this, this year. Um, and I think that's what we talk about when we, we refer to this idea of a new practicality, um, that's emerging as to how people are, are running their organizations or thinking about their lives. I think our main message for this year is that this isn't deja vu. Though it might feel like it, the start of 2022 is not the same as January 2021. We think that for many people, 2022 will be easier, it will be freer, it will be more open. Um, and as we, we learn to live with the virus, whether we agree with that or not, it is certainly government policy that we will be learning to live with the virus, as opposed to big changes in restrictions once again. We will need to accept a certain level of uncertainty about how we do things both in terms of our organisations, how we deliver things, how we socialise or how we engage with our friends, our families and our communities. And so that's the kind of new practicality that we think is emerging. So our main focus of this report is saying whatever is happening in the wider world that we don't have control over, we do still as leaders, as staff, as communities still have choices to make. We've still got some power and some agency. And our analysis is designed particularly to help people make the best decisions possible. Okay, and and so the report breaks down the kind of the issues that that charities are facing into kind of different categories. So we've got political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal issues. Um, so yeah, so in terms of the um, political issues, you talk about the um, importance or the cultural impact of so-called culture wars and the ways in which charities need to take a stance that they think is right in some of these issues. And we've seen countless examples of that. Um, but then you've also kind of said within the report that they that charities need to be seeking to build consensus and build bridges. How do charities navigate that balance then? So when it comes to the, the so-called culture wars, 
what we think that means is where there are issues of identity, of values and culture, and that they are used, uh, the issues that fall underneath those categories are used to divide the public and divide communities specifically for political gain. We've seen this play out particularly on issues like Black Lives Matter, trans rights and refugees. Culture wars are, are designed to divide us uh, in order to benefit someone um, as a political tactic, even though the public is often far more united than is often portrayed and our views on a whole range of issues and topics are far more nuanced than uh, would-be political pundits uh, would have us believe um, for those propagating a kind of culture war. So how do charities navigate this? So I think the, the main thing that we would want to stress is that where we have seen charities on the front line, they haven't necessarily been on the dividing line of quite a lot of the culture war conflict. So high-profile investigations by the Charity Commission over the last couple of years particularly thinking about Runnymede or Bernardo's or um, National Trust, have shown that actually where charities choose to engage, they should feel really confident. If they focus on their charitable objectives, they consider the issues, they bring their members with them, the Charity Commission will be completely on their side, even when perhaps the media might not be. So I think that would be a really important thing. Charities shouldn't feel afraid of getting involved um, in what is loosely called the kind of culture wars and the topics that are seen to fall underneath those. There will be genuine divisions. And where genuine divisions in our communities exist, and those divisions are in good faith. So there are people on two sides of an argument, but they're not coming at it from a bad faith perspective. They're not just doing it to divide us for the sake of dividing it, uh, us. They are doing it because people genuinely believe there is a tension between freedoms or rights or beliefs. That's where charities have a real vital role in bridging th those divides, particularly because they are trusted sources of information. Uh, they're trusted in terms of their insight and they are connected, deeply rooted in communities. And we know that having good conversations with people, with people we trust, helps us to reflect and broaden our minds when it comes to other people's perspectives. So we see that's a really important role um, for charities. Now, I mentioned there there are times when people will act in bad faith. When people are acting and the sole intention is to divide us um, for their own gain, then our role shouldn't necessarily always be to jump into the issues. It actually should be to name what is happening, to, to say this is what's going on. This is why this person is trying to divide us. This is how they will gain. Um, and we should call out that desire to divide because it's not real and it's not tapping into any sentiment that really holds up. Uh, it's purely there to divide and distract us. And in the report, we, we talk about the lifeboat charity, the RNLI, and how they responded uh, to kind of attacks from Nigel Farage last year uh, when he was calling uh, the RNLI a taxi service for illegal trafficking gangs. The charity didn't respond directly to those remarks. What they did do is they said, this is what we do, um, and we'll let the public decide what they think uh, about what we do. And what they reported at the end of last year was a 50% increase in donations. They tried to avoid getting drawn into the specifics about what Nigel Farage was trying to suggest and actually just very clearly reassert, this is what we're here to do. This is why we exist. And we're going to keep doing it. And the public said, yeah, we're right behind you. 
So I think there are, it's a, it is a really tricky issue, uh, area, I suppose, for charities to try and navigate. I think what we're saying is don't be afraid to jump in. People will be behind you. Don't always feel you have to engage on all the issues. Instead, call it out. But where there are divisions and it's genuine disagreement about things, actually charities have a really important role of helping people come together and, and build some consensus. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the other kind of political drivers that the report points to is around the government's levelling up agenda. And, you know, on the face of it, it does seem like an area where the voluntary sector can contribute. And it is definitely something that I think a lot of people in the sector have been keeping an eye on. But do you have any kind of concrete ideas of what that might look like? Because it seems to me that in the sector at the moment that there is a bit of kind of confusion about actually how can charities get involved in this? So when it comes to levelling up, we we think after two years of, of wandering around the same streets in the same cul-de-sacs during various lockdowns, um, unsurprisingly, there is a big policy attention focusing on places um, and the communities and spaces in which we live our lives. And the government's levelling up agenda, it, it might have been inspired by the kind of changing electoral geography within the Conservative Party. It might be about how do we make investment uh, in red wall seats, for example. Um, but it can, I think, galvanise some of our appetite again to see the places that we live and spend our time improve um, and correct kind of long-standing inequalities that exist both across kind of counties, uh, across parts of the UK in terms of regional differences, but also between different communities. So for us, levelling up isn't just about places. Um, it is also about uh, people and it's about communities across the UK too. So what we are saying is, if levelling up is about tackling inequality, then charities and volunteers should be front and centre of that. Um, And we uh, spoke with Neil O'Brien MP last summer when he was the Prime Minister's levelling up advisor. And we put together a very collaborative report with uh, over 200 organisations from across the charity and volunteering community um, to describe what we thought charities were already doing, essentially to tackle inequality and to level up um, the places that they were already working in, um, and to say what we thought the levelling up agenda should should mean. And we did that because actually charities charities do levelling up. Um, 70% of the voluntary sector is made up of small organisations, mostly local citizens, coming together to make their street or their town uh, or their community a better place to live. So the, the kind of narrative that is created around levelling up is already what is happening um, in communities. One of the things that we are pushing for a lot and where we are campaigning alongside others like locality, um, other infrastructure bodies as well, is around social infrastructure. So communities understand that it is the places and the spaces and the opportunities that exist in our communities that create this sense of togetherness. It's how ideas spark. It's how we have pride in where we live. So as well as roads and high-speed broadband, which are both necessities for thriving towns and cities. So many of places across the UK don't have good infrastructure, good roads, good bus services, don't have good internet. That is vital. But we need, in order to make that successful, investment in the social infrastructure. Um, And in the report, we use the analogy of of a home. So in the same way that our relationships turn a house, bricks and and mortar into a home, uh, which has feeling and connection. So strong social fabric turns a set of buildings 
that exist where we live into a community. It creates that sense of pride that we that we feel. We can't always say exactly what it is that that makes us feel that way, um, but we can sense when it doesn't when it's not there, when we can feel when it is. And without that, without that investment, without community centres or youth services, uh, that road that the Leveling Up Fund has paid for will only be a route out of places, uh, rather than one of many things that will create a really vibrant place for those people to live. So what does that mean in practice? Um, and I think uh, this is essentially the, the, the million dollar question, isn't it? Like every, every think tank, every organization, every government department has a different idea as to what they think uh, leveling up means. I think practically for us, there is things that we could be doing in the physical hard infrastructure. We know from NPC's report that most of the money, vast majority of the money that is earmarked under leveling up is going to build roads, bridges, train stations, um, high-speed broadband, that hard infrastructure. Um, and in some ways, that's good. It's good investment. And it's easier for government to make that happen. It's easier to build a road than build a sense of community. But there are things that we can do as part of that. So we could be building in youth apprenticeships uh, into contracts to build uh, new roads or bridges. Um, we could be contracting local charities and social enterprises to build uh, uh, the infrastructure needed for high-speed broadband. We could be adopting a model like in Preston um, that keeps wealth within a community by only partnering with local providers and actually supporting uh, local people to be able to bid um, for kind of government contracts as well. This actually could be a great mechanism for redistributing wealth and skills by uh, investment in the kind of physical infrastructure. But we also think that that social infrastructure is really important. And actually, for us, quite a lot of this is about restoring some of the infrastructure that was lost. So that's community centres. It's youth clubs uh, and youth provision uh, for children and young people. It's uh, play centres and play parks, uh, areas where people can come together and physically meet. Um, And it's about giving communities power over spending decisions, um, giving them a sense of ownership and pride in the place they live. So those are just a few of the things that we can imagine falling uh, under levelling up. But we, like everyone else, are eagerly anticipating the the government's white paper whenever uh, that should fall into our inboxes. (laughs) Yeah, it seems to me, I thought that the point about it's easier to build a road than than to build community is it was a really interesting one. I think it also speaks to this idea that it's easier to show that you've built a road than that you've built a community, right? Um, That kind of it's tangible versus intangible outcomes that are the crux of this. Yeah, it is. But, But interestingly, of course, the next election, or you, you can say you're going to build a road by 2024, uh, but you can't actually build it probably until 2029 or 2030. <laughs> so in some ways, the, the government's levelling up agenda will need to balance the promises of what will happen in the future because of levelling up. The government will need to demonstrate to the people they're hoping vote for them at the next election that things have actually changed uh, because people really do need uh, change to happen in their lives rather than just the promise of future change that might come in the years ahead. And how receptive do you think government is to some of these conversations that you're having and some of these 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 ideas you're putting forward around levelling up? So we know that the government have listened to a lot of charities. They've done a lot of good engagement, uh, not just with us, but with many of our partners, uh, many charities and community organisations. Um, that's good. Uh, they've asked us for lots of ideas and some evidence and data and more th- more thinking. 
but it it we just don't know like you know it all seems to be going into a big pot at the moment uh, and so until we really until we get the white paper we really don't won't know what's what's sticking yeah no fair enough and sometimes the answer is we don't know yet uh, we will find out. Yeah. So turning maybe now to uh, the economy um, and the, the report talks about the fact that the labour market is in flux as a result of the pandemic. Um, as we record this, we've seen this morning that inflation has, has, has been increasing rapidly. Um, and the report notes that this this flux in the labour market is going to mean that charities may have to support those affected as service users, which kind of makes a lot of sense. If people are struggling with work, we're going to see an increase in people needing charity services. But it also talks about what charities can do as employers. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about what that actually means in practice. So the economy is a big section of our report because there's so much in it that affects not just how charities will will need to support the communities that they're in, but also because they are employers um, and big employers at that. And so there are just things that will, they will also, as organisations, be impacted by by changes in the economy. So overall, last year, the economy did better than than expected. So there was strong growth in the, the economy. Um, and that suggests that there are more people doing more work earning more money, paying more tax, uh, and therefore there was more money available for the government to spend. Um, but also we know that this year uh, we'll be taxed more money too. So there, there will be more money for government to to play with. And we know that quite a lot of that money is, is going into long-term investment in things like our transition to net zero, um, but also health and social care. Alongside that, we also see prices arising. Um, cost of a, a weekly shop is increasing. Um, and the rate of inflation uh, is is higher. So taken together, this will have a number of impacts on charities. First of all, if you are a charity, particularly one delivering services, it's going to cost you more to pay staff, to run buildings and to, to deliver services. And that's going to be a challenge. We also can imagine that if a cost of living crisis exacerbates, uh, that more people are going to be pushed into needing charity support, just as we saw with increases to uh, requests at things like food banks over the course of the pandemic. And we know uh, that, that those two things then kind of are in tension with each other. So just as charities are feeling a squeeze, the demand for what they can provide increases. And of course, that just creates even more pressure uh, there as well. Now, what you asked me, Rebecca, a kind of very, very practical question, which was kind of what does it mean for charities as employers? Uh, and I think this is this is unfortunately where there is there will be a tension between what what we what we think organisations should be doing with then the reality of what they what they can feasibly do. Um, so the first thing that, of course, charities can do is that they can pay well. So we often talk about high executive pay in the news, but it is low pay across the charity sector that affects far more people, particularly um, in social care uh, kind of subsectors. So paying people well is really important. Um, I remember uh, a few years ago, I uh, hosted a panel at one of our conferences and uh, Edel Harris, who was then CEO of Cornerstone in Scotland, but who's now chief exec at Mencap, she was speaking on a panel and she was reflecting uh, about this this issue, and she said, and a kind of, it's not an exact quote, um, but if your business model doesn't allow you to pay people enough to live on, you don't have a viable business model, uh, and that has kind of always stuck, uh, kind of stuck with me. But again, that's going to be really hard for charities 
for all the reasons that I've just talked about. Um, the other thing, of course, that, uh, that we can do uh, is around kind of the mental health uh, and support. So we know that kind of burnout is, is a real challenge across the sector um, and a burnout workforce can't function. So there is only so far that we can, can for perhaps the right reasons, push people. Even if it's being done to support communities in desperate situations, it's not sustainable um, to push our, our own workforce um, to those limits. Uh, I think this links back to some of the, the new practicality that I, we would talk about in the report in the sense of we're two years in now, we're, not, we're no longer in an emergency. We can't sustain the energy of an emergency. Um, and so we will have to adjust what we can feasibly expect our staff or our volunteers um, to be to be delivering. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and in terms of sort of models and structures, obviously the, the technological turnaround that we've seen in the charity sector during the pandemic has been, you know, famously incredibly swift and and very impressive. You know, in early 2020, it was the 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 level of adaptation to sort of the, the demands of the of the pandemic were were brilliant. Um, what are the report's conclusions around the legacy of that level of adaptation that we saw? I mean, incredible is the right word, I think. Like, it really has been incredible how quickly we have been able to shift and adapt. So there are some conclusions, however, that we think are kind of challenging. So the, the 2021 Charity Digital Skills Report found that kind of two thirds of charities say that digital has been a priority. Unsurprising. Um, but 58% also reported that their board um, has kind of low digital skills and there's room for improvement. So we know that within organisations, that's going to, there's going to be a kind of a gap between people's skills, um, kind of within the workforce, but also with, with volunteers and with trustees. We think that's probably an, an underestimate, to be honest. Um, and I think we draw a distinction in the report about the, the digital skills required for delivering how we do stuff, um, so our services or our campaigns but also the digital skills for understanding and identifying areas of development as technology improves. So it is both about proficiency, but also about imagination. Us understanding Zoom was one thing in terms of how do I log on? How do I do reactions? How do I get into a breakout room? Imagining how we could run therapeutic support for um, kind of vulnerable children and young people via Zoom is a whole nother set of skills that we have to be able to imagine. Uh, and so I think that's that's where perhaps there's a, another gap as well. And obviously, one of the the key benefits of um, this working remotely has been around the environment reduction in in emissions as people aren't travelling so much that sort of thing. Um, and you know, on the environment, you note that charities have a key role to play in campaigning and holding others to account but also that they're going to have to get their own house in order first. Um, you know, in one of the blogs published alongside the report, you said, we'll need to dramatically upskill our sector to respond and lead. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about what are the skills the sector is lacking there and how can we close that gap? I think this is a really interesting area of of opportunity for our sector. So what we, we have seen, it is because of campaigners and movements and activists that we have made enormous leaps politically when it comes to climate change. And COP26 in Glasgow was a good reflection of that. Many years in the making. But we've seen its campaigners that have made politicians not just care, not just believe, but also commit legally uh, to act uh, to avert the worst effects of a climate crisis, but also to help mitigate um, where those effects are kind of irreversible at this point. 
those skills that we had in the sector around campaigning are kind of well honed uh, through various other kind of issues and fights uh, across the kind of the last hundred years. But when we talk about kind of skills that are needed next, um, I think it's about a shift in role that we see the sector needing to uh, needing to transition to. So first of all, you mentioned there around needing to get our own house in order. That's absolutely true. We will, as a sector, need to reduce our own emissions. Um, so as employers, um, as landowners, as owners of buildings, um, as investors in our pension pots or in kind of uh, uh, ethical investments um, or not, and a service delivery organization. So there's some really clear things. There's some really clear things that we're just going to have to respond to to just reduce our carbon footprint. But then there's, I think, the more the more exciting part of this, which is about the future needs and opportunities. So getting to net zero, a legal commitment by the government, does not need to be run nor led by government or private businesses. Charities, for example, could be leaders in renewable energy, uh, in supplying uh, kind of energy to homes across the country. That doesn't need to be a private business. We could we could do that. Another example that I've got here is around kind of retrofitting homes, something that we know is going to be essential um, to achieving net zero. The homes that need retrofitting are predominantly in poorer parts of the UK. They also need investment. They also need a reduction in their household bills, something that we talked about earlier and something that better insulated homes allows. It is also we're going to need new skilled jobs uh, in those communities in order to do that retrofitting. So we think there is a possible kind of green, uh, a green levelling up, I suppose. Uh, we could fix quite a lot of those other social challenges that we are committed to doing and that we do support day in, day out as charities across the country. But we can imagine how could we solve quite a number of these problems all into intersectioning, I suppose, around kind of climate change, but actually allowing us to do multiple things uh, with, with kind of single acts. So this obviously this report, it's an annual report. Um, it's come out this week. How are you hoping this is going to be used? How are you hoping the sector are going to look at this and take it on board? So we know from, from the number of people that kind of read it, that download it, that turn up to our events, we know that people um, need or like to have this kind of big overview of, of, the, of what we think is going to impact on the sector. Um, and we know that quite a lot of organisations who are busy running services or busy campaigning don't always have this, the time uh, that infrastructure bodies like us have to kind of step back um, and think about some of the, the bigger things and forces that might impact on us over the year ahead. How we, how we hope and how we know that our members certainly, but others in the sector use it is, it's this, it's through away days with their boards of trustees. It's sending it out to, um, their kind of trustees and their staff to, to read, to be thinking about these things. Um, because actually what we're saying is that there are lots of decisions to be made, um, both about kind of short term changes, uh, but also over the longer term. So anything, uh, Anything that adds to that or helps us understand what's going on, I think, is useful. And of course, we've drawn on so much fantastic work and research and experience and knowledge as we've put this together. Um, this isn't just us sitting in society building in King's Cross, coming up with lots of like nice thoughts. Um, this is really rooted in the experience of our members and, and what we're seeing and hearing both from the evidence, but also from the experience of people. Um, and so we hope that kind of combination makes it really practical uh, to see kind of what are some of the big issues, but hopefully helps people think about what they might be able to do next 
um, in terms of their organizations, how they run, but also the things that they might need to respond to um, in the months and years ahead. Okay, brilliant. Um, Alex Farrow, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin with positive or quirky news stories that we have spotted in the sector. And I'm delighted to welcome back Alina, our editorial assistant. Alina, what do you have for us this week? Hello. Yes, picking up on your conversation earlier about charity shop donations, this is a story about a cat who was donated to charity. Oh, what? No. We're going to need to check this cat was alive, I think, based on previous conversations. That's a good point. Before anyone gets alarmed, I would like to clarify that this was an accident and the cat was and is still alive. Um, A family from Denver, USA, were having an old furniture clear out and decided to donate a bunch of items to the local charity shop. One of these items was an old reclining chair, which happened to also contain Montequila, the family cat, who had tucked himself inside the chair's mechanism. No one realized this had happened until the charity shop staff heard that the chair was meowing (laughs) and decided they had to have a closer look. They opened it and there he was, scared but otherwise unharmed. The shop employees called the Denver Animal Shelter to come pick Montequila up and bring him to his family, but unfortunately his microchip hadn't been updated so the owners couldn't be reached immediately. However, before long, the family noticed their cat was gone. They called the charity shop and they were finally reunited. Yay! That is a heartwarming story. Like, it's a much... I mean, when Rebecca said it was this cat alive or dead, I hadn't even <laughs> thought about the fact that it might be a dead cat. But perhaps I should have done with the bird, the hamster. People do all kinds. Um, I've never owned a cat. I'm not really a cat famously. I'm a bit of a dog person, not really a cat person. But from what I know about cats, they do seem to have this knack for just getting into the darndest places, don't they? They really do. I have a similar story about my cat Cleopatra, who had a habit of climbing into my book bag. So whenever I came (laughs) back from school, I'd take out the books I needed for my homework and then leave the bag on the floor. And she would just climb in and hang out in there doing God knows what. (laughs) So one morning I was I was rushing to catch the bus and I just grabbed my bag without looking and left the house. And I was almost at the bus stop down the road when I realized that my bag was moving. (laughs) Yeah. So I had to go back home and drop her off. Uh, I missed my bus, of course. And then I had to wake up my sister and ask her to give me a ride to school. Um, She was not impressed. (laughs) But at least, at least, you know, you, you didn't open, you know, at least you didn't open the bag in first math class or whatever and have a cat jump out. I mean, that really would have been something. I love that idea. No, although I feel like all my classmates would have loved me. Yeah, absolutely. And Rebecca, do you have something for us as well? I do indeed. So I've got a case of mistaken identity, which led to a donation to charity, which obviously we're in favour of. So it worked out well. Um, So have you guys been playing Wordle? I haven't. And everyone keeps saying to me, are you on the Wordle thing? And I'm not. And there's all these brightly coloured squares on Twitter. And I don't, I don't want to be one of those people who's like, oh, yeah, I'm not playing Wordle because I'm like, too trendy for it. That's definitely <laughs> yeah, not I, it. I'm I opting just... out of whatever crass trend you social media people are all on. <laughs> it looks quite wholesome, to be fair, but yeah. I'm not playing it. Are you playing it? Uh, I have started. I've played, I've, I've done a few days worth. So it's, 
yeah, I, if other people have seen, like me, like Emily was saying, like you just see these kind of little coloured squares that appear on people's social media and people start congratulating them or sounding very impressed. And it's you kind of go, where has this come from? And it's a game called Wordle, which the, like the idea is it's a five-letter word and you have to guess what it is. And you get six guesses and it'll tell you which letters you've got right with little green squares and which letters are in the sorry which letters you've got right and are in the right place and which letters are in the word but are not in the right place in the word and then sort of you you guess from there you know trying different combinations to find the word of the day is the idea it's a very simple game and it's just you know it's completely taken off it's been this kind of surprise hit of the year and it's really in some ways it's quite surprising because it's not an app it's just you just go to a web page every day so it's actually quite a kind of you know idea from maybe the mid-noughties or something like that like it's very simple um but um, so this has been this massive hit. Everyone's gone nuts over it. But the creator of an entirely different game, also called Wordle, uh, I'm saying that because it's got a little exclamation mark at the end. So Wordle has seen a huge spike in the number of people downloading his app because they think it's connected to the Wordle game that everybody's got so obsessed with recently. Um so Steve Cravotta created an app that he dubbed Wordle when he was 18. Mostly, he says, just for fun and to sharpen his coding skills. This was about five years ago. Um, and he didn't it didn't really take off and he you know he stopped updating and promoting it after a few months but it's still on the app store so this old version of wordle is like a, a timer based word game it's got an average of one or two downloads per day in the last sort of 5 years or so but in the past week that number has skyrocketed to nearly 200,000 thanks to the success of the new word game which has been created by Josh Wardle uh, so this is the new one. So once Cravotta realised what was happening, he contacted Wardle um, and he told Rolling Stone, I figured out we could turn this lucky scenario into something amazing. Both of our apps are word-based games, so I figured we should donate the profits to a literacy-type organisation. And the pair have agreed that the proceeds from the Wordle app will go to Boost West Oakland, which is a non-profit that focuses on literacy for young people in Oakland, California. Um, I should say it's not clear at the moment how much money has actually been raised or generated by those downloads, but this is just, like I say, like a nice little coincidence that has led to uh, a windfall for this charity in, in Oakland in California. It's good news. And I think this is the thing about this Wordle game is that it's all very wholesome and just uncomplicated, which goodness knows we could probably all use a bit of that right now. Absolutely. So maybe I'll start playing the Wordle and make a donation to boost West Oakland saying that because there's also an exclamation mark in that charity name. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. I'm Rebecca Cooney. And I'm Alina Martin. Thank you to our guest, Alex Farrow, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.